Well, good morning. My name is John Allen. Welcome to Risen Church. Um, happy Valentine's Day weekend slash Super Bowl Sunday, whatever this is. I don't know. Um, I guess Valentine's Day is tomorrow, technically, right? Uh, but I think sometimes just, you know, you know, we'll just call it the whole weekend, Valentine's weekend. Um, some of you are like also seeing that as Singles Awareness Day. Um, but that's okay because, uh, you know, whether you are like, okay, it's Super Bowl Sunday, your team's not in the Super Bowl, or Valentine's Day, neither of those things matter a whole lot to you. You know what does matter? We are starting a new series this morning. So, um, which actually does matter a lot uh, in comparison to all of that other stuff. What we're going to talk about in this new series is extremely significant. And so we're, we're going to start a series in the Gospel of John. We're going to walk through the Gospel of John, the book of John, um, over the next few weeks um, slash months. And um, it, we're calling it Sharing Life, or sorry, Share Life Like Jesus. That's the name of the uh, series. And so one of the healthy characteristics of being a true disciple of Jesus is that you share the good news about Jesus with others. Right? Some of you may be here this morning because someone shared good news with you. Maybe they just invited you to church. Maybe you're just friends and you were like, hey, let's go. Or maybe you just were like Googling churches or something on the internet and you're like, hey, I'm going to show up. Either way, somebody did something to share the life they have in Christ. And that's why basically we're all here this morning. Again, this is a great, if this is your first time, good time to dive in, right? We're just kicking this thing off. So, um, by this characteristic of sharing the good news about who Jesus is with each other um, is how God has called us to make disciples and fulfill his great commission. Like Christianity has never been about sitting around and waiting for him to come back, like just burying our talents in the ground while the world stumbles around in darkness. That is not Christianity. It never has been, really. It's always been about sharing the life and the light of Jesus Christ. Making disciples who make disciples. This is the great commission that Jesus gave us all, not just the pastors, not just the professionals. This is for the, every, uh, the whole church, everyone who's filled with the Spirit and bought by his blood. This is our commission, right? And so this happens by sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. But let's be honest, it can get a little intimidating, right? Just talking about Jesus can get intimidating, especially in a fallen world. Like, like it, 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 it's clear, just bringing up the name of Jesus in conversation almost always brings a major shift in the atmosphere, right? It's why people don't do it. You can be a believer and hear somebody sitting beside of you and someone says the name Jesus and you're like, oh. You're just kind of like, oh. That's a little, uh, I don't know whether I should pray or just kind of move over here, right? You know why? Because there's power even in the name of Jesus. It matters, which is just more reason to bring him up in as many conversations and interactions as you possibly can, as naturally, or maybe I should say as supernaturally as possible. But sometimes that's easier said than done, right? 
Like, have you ever heard people talking about a conversation or an interaction that they were having with a friend or a coworker or a family or, or like the random guy at the cash register in a store, right? And they're like, yeah, and, and you're like, and that's when he prayed to receive Christ. And you're like, well, how did you even get there, right? You know what I'm talking about? Am I the only one who hears this and you're t- people are like, they just got to this place of sharing the gospel with someone, and you're like, how did you even broach the subject, Right? Like, what was the opening line? Did you have, like, a Jesus pickup line that you just got, like, okay, I've used that one. So it's like, hey. You know, and then somehow, somehow you just kind of naturally shifted into this deep gospel conversation about Jesus and his kingdom. That's what I want to talk to you about. Not gospel pickup lines, but... <laughs> I actually have been really looking forward to this particular series for years now. Because what we're going to do is we're going to take a deep dive into the way that Jesus naturally shares life with people. We're going to look at the way he interacts with others. We're going to look at everything from his body language to his words. Like I want to drink in the master disciple maker. That's who he is. And I want to look at what motivates him. And I want to look at how he shares the good news of the kingdom because that's what he does in his every interaction because it's who he is. And it's who he's called us to be. And so I want you to see that it all flows directly out of his love for God and his heart for people. It's actually that simple. And so my hope for this series is that we would drink in, again, the master disciple maker, and then he will give us a heart for others, and he would give us his eyes to see, and his words to speak, and his feet to go, and even his arms to embrace the world around us. And this is not about your personality. This is not about, like, sometimes I've heard people say things like, well, you know, that's, that's what, like, the gifted evangelists do, Right? As though that's justification for us all to be like, well, that's not my thing, that's their thing. And yet the Bible tells us that we're all called to do the work of an evangelist. All of us. And if the Spirit dwells inside of you because you've been bought by his blood, then guess what? You've not only been called, but you've been equipped to go and do likewise. And so my hope is that we will tap into the very spirit of God and become the very body of Christ to the world around us just by falling deeper in love with him and sharing the life that we have in him. Now, I know that I often tend to share some stories and interactions myself that I found myself in, but I want you to know that <laughs> probably more often than not, I totally blow it right? Like you guys up here kind of get like the Instagram version. Like it's all cleaned up and you get like my best foot forward. But you don't see the times where I'm just like, Jesus, I'm going to go over here. You scare me, right? Like, like there, that stuff happens. I, and honestly, when I think back on these kinds of interactions, it's much more like he's seeing people and loving people through me. And sometimes often in spite of me. Like I'm not kidding. There's been countless situations where my heart goes out to somebody or he places somebody in front of me in the most random places sometimes. And I'm like, really, God, now? Like, I'm in line at the vitamin shop right now. You want me to share the gospel with this guy? You want me to strike up a conversation and lead this person to Christ? And he's like, yep, that one, now, go. 
That's actually happened before. That's a whole a total tangent. That happened, okay? Um, but what we're going to see here, though, is that in this series, Jesus is pleased to be inconvenienced along the way. He's pleased to be inconvenienced along the way. So I don't think it's like a, this is like a template to be copied and pasted or even like a special one-size-fits-all tactic. Oftentimes we try and take like evangelistic strategies and we treat it like it's this mechanized, sterile thing and we just put it on people and we're like, okay, this is the gospel, boom, go. And then it's void and dry and sterile and there's no love in it and there's no real customization to it and there's no prayer that has gone into it either. Does that make sense? And then the people are like, you're really weird, I'm going to go over here, right? So what I want you to see, of course, though, there's things that we can become more aware of and wisdom to learn and use when engaging others. But at the end of the day, sharing life like Christ happens as the natural overflow of sharing life in Christ, okay? Tapping into his heart, beholding his glory, and letting him fill you with his spirit to see and engage and embrace the world around you. Because when you share life in Christ, you'll share life like Christ. Okay? And again, hear me. I blow it all the time. But every now and then, I'm blown away by what God invites me to partner with him in. I can look around this room right now and see people that I have just been blown away by what God has done in your lives. It's an honor, and it's all by beholding him because he is the master disciple maker. And so in this series, we're going to walk through the Gospel of John starting with chapter 1, and we're going to take a look at the specific encounters and interactions that Jesus has with people. I want to look at how Jesus shares life with people and dialogues with them. I want to look at how, per, how he personally adapts his message to meet people right where they are in grace and truth, in deep compassion, and yet without any compromise. This is how he does this. It's amazing. I want to behold the way Jesus shares life and the kingdom. And my hope is that we would then become conduits for Jesus by the Holy Spirit to share that same life with others today. So last week, I said that to share life like Christ, we must be sharing life in Christ, right? And so that was the heartbeat of Christ's prayer in John 17. And it's the heartbeat of this entire series now as we walk through the book of John and we're going to look at these interactions. So as we kick off this sermon series, here's what I want you to get. If you get nothing else, this is what I want you to get. And really, it's the main point that I had last week and it's going to saturate this entire series, right? And so it is, when you share life in Christ, you'll share life like Christ. Like there's a depth to this. There's a simplicity here, but there's also a depth that I want you to grab a hold of and see this as we go forward. So turn with me to John uh, chapter 1, and we're going to start with a a revelation of who Jesus actually is. And then we're going to hone in on his first interaction with uh, the first two of his disciples in verse 35 through 39. Now, Fair warning before we dive in, this is again going to be one of those series that's like drinking from a fire hydrant, all right? So this is one of those things where I'm going to give you a ton of stuff, and you're going to feel like you're just soaking wet. But again, just open your mouth, you're going to get some good stuff, all right? But a lot you might miss, but that's okay. I want you to just sit back 
and enjoy and soak up as much as you can. It's going to be good. So, um, again, John 1, one of my favorite passages, mind-blowing, all right? John 1, verse 1. This is how the Gospel of John begins. Starts with this. You guys ready? All right. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. All right? So who is this Jesus? He's talking about Jesus. Like John comes out of the gate swinging with the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Like it's just, he's just, let's go. This is who he is. Pure glory. Like, in order for us to, to understand any of these interactions with any real significance, we need to realize who it is that we're beholding in these interactions. Like, he's not just some moral teacher offering suggestions on how to live your best life. He is life. That's what he's saying. Apart from him, you only have death. John 1 is actually a direct reference to the first chapter and verse of Genesis, which is the creation account. Think about this. Genesis, John 1.1 is directly connected with Genesis 1.1. So Genesis 1.1 says this, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So in the beginning God. And then John says, In the beginning was the Word. You see the connection here? And remember, he's referring to Jesus as the Word of God, the very communication of God the Father, overflowing in infinite goodness and glory and fullness. It's the very essence of logic and rationality, and yet he's fully personal and he's fully relational. Like he's not an ethereal or insubstantial idea that you can mold into your own image, right? He's the very communication of God the Father. Like, he's, he's relational, he's personal. He was God, and he was with God. Indistinguishable from God, and yet somehow distinct. This is the mystery of what's called the Trinity. We talked a little bit about it last week. This should make you think. Because God has created you as rational, logical beings in his image. That's a good thing. God is calling his people to contemplate, to meditate, to ponder, and to engage those synapses of your brain to think logically and rationally, not to shut down and check out. Not to be like, oh, I can't comprehend all that. That's crazy. I'm going to go over here and just start scrolling. Zoned. He's calling you to check in, to lean in, to listen in, to hear what the Spirit is saying through the Word of God, to engage and yet, also, to realize that it's fully logical for us not to be able to fully comprehend him because he's God and we're not. Right? Like, this is supposed to make you wonder because he is wonderful. Three persons. I'm sorry. One nature, three persons. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right? The Trinity. What? And yet there's deep revelation here. So the Greek word for word here in reference to Jesus is talking about the Son. He's talking about the Word of God. 
The word here in Greek is logos, right? It's where the very word logic comes from. It's where we get the word logic. So Christianity is actually supremely logical, just not by a fallen world standards, right? Like the way this world operates is often extremely illogical. But what we see here, both in Genesis 1 and here in John 1, is that all of creation finds its origin in the very word or logos of God as it was spoken into existence. Genesis 1 verse 3 says, and God said, say God said, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. John 1, verse 4 through 5 says this, In him, talking about Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So it could also be translated here as the darkness has not comprehended it. It's neither overcome it nor comprehended it. So he is, Jesus is the origin and the fullness of true light and life. So we're talking about both physical and spiritual here. So he is the word of God eternally throbbing with the fullness of life and light that utterly eradicates and even confounds the forces of death and darkness. That's who he is. Not only can they not overcome him, but they're completely overwhelmed and even confounded by him. They're confused by him. This is the Jesus that we serve. This is our Savior and King. Have you ever wondered why, if you read the Bible in the New Testament, like when Jesus encounters demonic forces, they're not only terrified of him, but they're confused at his presence? Because they're not only overwhelmed, they're confounded. Because that's who he is. It's because the darkness can neither prevail over him nor comprehend him. And so although they may kill him, he will rise because in him is life. You see this? And the life is the light of men. This is the gospel. That God became a man. He lived the life we couldn't live and he died the death we deserved to die. And he conquered death in the grave. And he paved the way to eternal life. And it's an eternal life that starts now, not just one day when we die, but it starts now, the moment we receive him as our Lord and Savior and place our hope and our faith in him, and his spirit indwells us. This is, this is what he's called us to do. This is the gospel. And through the indwelling of his spirit, he recreates and he remakes us into the children of God and the light of the world. So I want you to see this because I want you to see who it is that we're reading about here. This is the one who spoke you into existence. This is the very record of the risen Lord, the word of God, the catalyst of creation. As, As one commentator put it, he said, darkness can no more overcome the light than creation could overcome its creator. This is who Jesus is. John 1 verse 14, it says this, And the word, or the logos, talking about Jesus, the logos, the word, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So I really want you to get this. Again, Jesus isn't just some kind of made-up storybook character like, or, or cartoon fairy tale. Like, he's not just some kind of teacher offering ideas or, or like, recommendations for society. He 
is life and light. To ignore, trivialize, or disobey him is death and darkness. Let that seep in. But to receive him and to follow him and to hang on his every word and to worship him is abundant life full of grace and truth. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now that word there, dwelt, is actually a word that means he tabernacled among us. It's a reference to the way God's presence dwelled in the tabernacle with his people in the wilderness of the Old Testament. Like when, the, when the, his people were moving through uh, the wilderness, he, would, they had him, he had them set up a tent and he called it the tabernacle. And it's where his manifest presence would dwell in their midst. And it was called the tabernacle, where the Holy of Holies would be. And so there's a reference there. That word has an illusion. It's that his, he, he became flesh and he tabernacled among us. It was all in the Old Testament a foretaste of what God would ultimately do as he tabernacles with us in Jesus Christ and through his spirit even now. So the word of God, the communication of God, the catalyst of creation in the flesh is tabernacling in our midst with his people. Emmanuel, God with us. So John 1 Verse 16, look at this. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. There's like a compounding effect here. In verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now this doesn't mean that the law wasn't a good thing or even a gracious thing, which is what they received in the Old Testament. Like actually no other nation was shown the favor that Israel was shown. It was a gracious gift. Right? They were the ones that God gave his law and his goodness to, and it was an amazing thing. The point that he's making here in verse 17 is that the revelation of Christ is an even better thing than what God gave to Moses through the law. In fact, Jesus is the fullness and fulfillment of the law. You might even say he's the word of God in the flesh or something. Right? Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus has made him known. Now to really grasp the power of this, I want you to see the connection that John 1 is making with Exodus 33 and 34 in the Old Testament, all right? So let's look real quick at Exodus 33. We start at verse 18. This is how Moses received God's law or the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. Like, I want you to see this. Go with me here because this is so powerful. Verse 18, Exodus 33, verse 18. Moses, so he's speaking to God, and he says, Please show me your glory. <laughs> what a prayer, right? Show me your glory. Verse 19. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. 
And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So this is how God reveals himself to Moses in the Old Testament. This is so powerful. There's so much here that's just screaming Jesus. So bear with me because there's a ton of imagery and there's a ton of goodness here. So, so hear me, if you catch half of this of what I'm about to share, I'll be happy. All right? But you're going to have to really lean in. Moses asks God to see his glory. And God says that all of his goodness will pass before him and proclaim his name. Right? So what's in a name? It's a communication of the very essence of who he is, his character, his nature, his ways, all of his goodness wrapped in a name. And it will pass by him or pass before him. That's important. Remember that. But in verse 20, he says, you can't see my face because it would be fatal. Moses is a, sin is a sinful man. And sinful humanity can't handle the unmitigated glory of God, which is what it means to see his face, okay? But God says in verse 21, there's a place by me. I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's at his right hand. You know, the place where Jesus is seated, according to Hebrews 10 and Revelation 5. It's also the place where the fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore are, according to Psalm 1611. Also, this place by God at his side is where Moses shall stand on the rock. Now, I think he's talking about way more than just a physical place on top of a mountain here. Because throughout the Bible, Christ is alluded to using the imagery of a rock or a stone. He's the rock of our salvation. He's the cornerstone. He's the firm foundation upon which we stand. It's the imagery that's used in parables like Matthew 7, where the wise man builds his, builds his house upon the rock instead of the shifting sand. Right? That's where the foolish man builds it on the shifting sand. The wise man builds it on the rock. Or like the stone that David takes down the giant Goliath with in 1 Samuel 17. It's a picture of what the Messiah would do to the enemies of God. The Messiah is the stone, right? Or like Daniel's dream in the book of Daniel, where there's a, he's, he's a dream of a stone that's cut out of a mountain by no human hands. It's like divinely carved out and then hurled at, un, at the ungodly kingdoms of the world and it crushes them. And then the stone grows into this huge mountain that represents the kingdoms of God that fill the earth. Or it's not the kingdoms, but the kingdom of God that fills the earth. So that stone is, again, a reference to the coming Messiah or the Christ and his kingdom that would fill the earth. On and on, we see this imagery throughout the Bible to be a reference to Jesus. And that's definitely the case here in Exodus 33. He says to Moses, this place in my presence will be the place where you shall stand on the rock. And he says his glory will pass him by. But the only way he'll survive is not only by standing upon the rock, but by literally being hidden in the rock. 
He hides him in the cleft of the rock. Verse 22, look at this. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Now, it's important to remember that God intends for his glory and presence and all of his goodness to pass him by. Again, remember that. In the next few verses, God tells Moses to cut out two tablets of stone. Again, the reference to Jesus, the rock of our salvation, is all over this. Because God says, I'm going to write his, my very words in the form of the law on the stone. So God's going to manifest the word of God upon the rock. The imagery is like magnificent. It's unavoidable. And yet, how many times have I even read over this and been like, oh yeah, rocks and stone, it's cool. And Jesus is just all over it. So this is how God, again, revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 33 and how he gave him the law, which was his word, okay? So if you're not uh, taking all of this in, that's okay. Like, you can go back and meditate on all this stuff. It's really powerful. It's really good. But here's what I want you to get to. So listen, this is Moses' final prayer. After this experience, Moses prays this just before he takes the law down to the people because he's up on a mountain. Um, Exodus 34, verse 8 through 9, look at this. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. Now remember, a stiff-necked people are are people that have a stiff neck. That means you can't repent, because repent means to turn, right? So if you're stiff-necked, it's like, you know. So if you're focused on your own ways and your own will and your own kingdoms and your own agendas, and God says, no, focus on me, behold me, I'm good, that's not, that's killing you, and you're stiff-necked, means you don't want to repent, right? Like, yeah, but I want this, and God's like, ah, that's bad. Yeah, but whatever, I think it's good. Well, you're not God. I am. Trust me. I love you. Right? Repent. Stiff-necked people don't repent. So this is Moses interceding on behalf of a stiff-necked, unrepentant people. And he says, and he says um, for it's a stiff-necked people, and pardon. Go into the midst of them and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. So this was Moses' prayer after having stood upon and hidden in Um, the rock of salvation as the glory of God passed him by. So his prayer was for the Lord himself to go into their midst, in our midst even, and it was a prayer for repentance and salvation and redemption of God's people. And that's exactly what's been answered for us in Jesus Christ, the ultimate rock of our salvation. This is exactly what the Spirit of God does because it gives us no longer stiff necks but the ability to repent. And if then we still refuse to repent in that, that means he's not Lord. And if he's not your Lord, then guess what? He ain't your Savior either. That's exactly what's being answered here, though, in Christ. Because all of this is what John 1 is trying to communicate to us about who Jesus is. The Word of God, the creator of the universe, life itself, who is the light of of men. The word made flesh, the creator of the universe. He's dwelling in our midst, tabernacling among us, even within us, full of grace and truth. So no matter how much you get caught up into this mess, his grace is sufficient. He will receive you. 
But you got to turn to him, right? Grace upon grace and abiding. That's who we're talking about when we're talking about Jesus. John 12, verse 45 even says, whoever has seen me, Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So when it, also when it talks about Jesus being at the right hand of the Father or at the Father's side, it really means that he's in the bosom of the Father. Like he's in the very heart or the depth, the center. That's what it's talking about. It's an expression of deep intimacy. And it's that intimacy that he's inviting us into. In fact, this is the exact language that John, the author of this gospel, John, the son of Zebedee, is using to describe the way he relates to Jesus. He actually refers to himself as the beloved disciple. In John 13, 23, he describes himself as being at Jesus' side. Or literally, the phrase is, in the bosom of Jesus. You might even say he's hidden in the cleft of Jesus. By the way, you want a Valentine's Day message? You ever wondered why God created Eve from Adam's rib in Genesis? Because she is a picture of Christ's church, the bride of Christ who's ultimately created to be intimately at his side, in his bosom, or in the bosom of the Lord. See, covenant marriage is designed to reflect the love between Christ and the church. That's you. Cool, isn't it? I think it's cool. So the kind of relationship that Jesus had with the Father is the kind of relationship that John had with Jesus. And John is here in this gospel inviting all of us through this recorded account to experience the same kind of relationship that he has with Jesus. And it's that kind of relationship that our marriages are called to reflect to the world. And when we screw up and you're not like really interested in being in the bosom of your husband or something, you know, that's where grace happens. And then you offer grace and you receive grace. And by doing so, you articulate grace to a world that has no comprehension of it. It's called testimony. So this is the invitation to be his beloved, redeemed disciple, experiencing grace upon grace and truth, true love, compassion without compromise, and the fullness of God's glory in Jesus who tabernacles with and within us as the word made flesh. And so if you're not married, who cares? You got Jesus. You see this? He's all we need. He's our all in all. I hope this overwhelms you. I really do. I hope this overwhelms you with wonder because it's, it should. It's wonderful. Like in many ways, that's why John's recording this account of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. It's not just so you can be saved from hell. It's so you can share life in Christ. And when we share life in Christ, we'll share life like Christ. When we hide ourselves in him, when we run to him as our refuge, when we go to him as the approachable one who leads us and guides us to the unapproachable father who stands in unapproachable light, this is, this is, what, we're, this is what it's all about, right? And so now that we have a little glimpse of who it is that we're talking about here, I want to hone in on, the, on these next few verses as the incarnate king interacts with his first two disciples, Andrew and John, who is the son of Zebedee, who's also the one who's writing this gospel account. So look with me at John, verse one, uh, sorry, John 1, verse 35. All right, you guys with me? Okay, so 
Verse 35, the next day, again, John was standing with the two, uh, sorry, the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. So this is talking about John the Baptist, who, again, is different from uh, John, the one who wrote this gospel, John the son of Zebedee. This gets a little confusing, all right? So I want to clarify, all right? So John the Baptist is the one who's calling people to repent and preparing the way for Jesus. And then he points to Jesus and says, behold, the Lamb of God, which is a powerful statement about who Jesus is. But the two men who are with John the Baptist are like, okay, he's the one that we've been waiting for, got it. So they then leave John the Baptist in order to follow Jesus, which is exactly what John the Baptist wants. So here's where it gets good, all right? Let's look at, take a look at the first recorded interactions between Jesus and his first disciples. There's so much here, but this morning we're just going to hone in on Christ's first interaction here with his first two disciples, who are Andrew and John, the son of Zebedee, okay? So again, this gets a little confusing. Remember John the Baptist and John, the son of Zebedee, two different people. But as John the Baptist is standing there, he's with John, the son of Zebedee, and Andrew. I'm not quite sure where they're standing, but you get the idea. They're with him, okay? <laughs> and so, um, yeah, John 1, verse 38. So they're standing there, and then Jesus, it says, verse 38. They follow him, and then it says, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. So there's a lot here. Just in these two verses, there's so much about the way Jesus interacts with us and how he wants us to interact with others, or, or how he wants to interact with others through us, I should say, right? In fact, there's three significant things that Jesus does here that are crucial for sharing life in Christ and sharing life like Christ that I want you to get. So the first thing he does is often overlooked, but it's probably the most significant thing that he does in all of redemptive history. I can't emphasize the importance of this first action enough because it's everything. Jesus turns and sees. Like it may seem like it's an insignificant detail, but it's not at all. And it's probably the very detail most people leave out when attempting to share life in Christ, right? Like we don't, we shouldn't, to just not even see people, we see labels, right? But Jesus sees all of you, and he turns. And he doesn't have an agenda other than just seeing you and loving you and wanting you to be with him where he is. That's it. So again, let's drop back, and I want to get a visual for what's happening here. John the Baptist, he's been preaching and baptizing people and preparing the way for Jesus to come. He's gathered a number of disciples to himself, and yet his entire ministry wasn't really about drawing anyone to himself. It's all about preparing them to follow Jesus. Then he discovers that Christ has arrived. The Messiah shows up. The Son of God is here, and it's Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, the day just before this, he has encountered Jesus, and he heard God the Father speak over his Son, 
And then the, John the Baptist even saw the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus like a dove and stay with him. So we get the confirmation that this is the one he has been preparing everyone for. And so now it's the next day. The commotions died down, and you can be sure that John the Baptist has been telling his disciples about what just happened the day before, right? Like he's probably standing there with John and Andrew and telling them all about it, right? And so there he is, standing with his two disciples, and Jesus passes by. Notice Jesus isn't walking away from them, and he's not walking towards them. He's walking by them. That's important. There's this window of time where the Son of God has come near, but it's also clear that he intends to go on his way, to walk by, to be about his own business. You might even say to pass them by. At this point, that should sound familiar. Because we've just been reminded of the situation in Exodus where the glory of God and all his goodness passes by Moses. Moses couldn't handle the face of God. He could only catch a glimpse of his back. But here, the glory of God and all of his goodness is passing by again. The fullness of the Father is passing by. And John the Baptist's testimony comes to complete fruition here as he says, Behold the Lamb of God. And the implication here is that not only is Jesus the fullness of God's glory and goodness, not only is Jesus the very image of the invisible God, not only is he the visible face of the Lord himself, he's also the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. He's also the rock of salvation, the foundation upon which we stand and the very cleft in which we hide in the very presence of the unmitigated glory of the Father. What? He is the approachable avenue through whom we may encounter the God who dwells in unapproachable light. And through the testimony of John the Baptist, his disciples begin to follow Jesus. He's approachable. And when they do, whew, God in the flesh who was passing by turned and saw them. God turned towards them and his face shined upon them. And if this sounds familiar, it's because it's a really popular blessing from the Old Testament book in number 6, verse 24 through 26. You've probably heard it before. The Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. You know why that's popular? Because it's the true desire of every human heart, whether they know it or not. Can you see it happening? Right here. Like, it, the hairs of my arm literally are standing up right now. Like, you're just thinking about it. The eyes of the Lord turn towards them. The Prince of Peace and the Lion of Judah has fixed his gaze upon Andrew and John as they draw near. Like, it would have been both peaceful and petrifying. Because Jesus doesn't just see them. He sees all of them. 
He sees right through to their very essence. His eyes are like a consuming fire. He's the creator king. Again, he's not just some hippie moral teacher. He's the glory of God incarnate. And he doesn't need the disciples. He doesn't need any of us. He's fully good and fully glorified and perfectly content in himself with the Trinity, within the Trinity, as he has been for eternity. And yet, and yet, and yet, Jesus turned. The Son of God is pleased to inconvenience himself and turn toward you. And just to show you that I'm not just reading into some trivial detail here, this is actually a theme that saturates the entire Bible. Like the image begins in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve sin against God and they find themselves ashamed and exposed and vulnerable, right? And so they cover themselves with fig leaves and they try to hide. Way back in Genesis, Genesis 3, verse 8 through 10 says this, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? So the image here is of God turning to look for Adam. Now, God knows exactly where, God, where Adam's at. God's not confused. He's God. Now, the image here is that God isn't just going about his business as if Adam doesn't matter. He wants Adam to be with him where he is. He's, he knows that there's a distance. And so the implication of God's question of where are you goes deeper than a mere location. God's calling Adam to identify the condition of his own soul Where are you in life right now? How often does this world just block that out entirely? That is the condition of the entire lost world that does not want to deal with that question. Where are you? Where's your soul? Take inventory of yourself. Investigate your heart and your relationship with me. Where are you? Verse 10. And he said, Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And so humanity has been hiding themselves from God ever since. Until this day in John 1, when the rock of our salvation arrived and the very glory of God himself became our hiding place and refuge. In Jesus We no longer need to hide from God. We've been invited to hide ourselves in him. Incidentally, (laughs) I love this Bible. This is what was being prefigured in the garden. When God replaced those rotting fig leaves that had been detached from the vine, so to speak, right? And they're they're withering away. It's not going to, they're about to get exposed again, right? It's not just temporary. Like, that's, that all represents humans' Humanity's vain efforts for salvation. It's works righteousness. And he replaces them with the skin of animals. Skins of animals, which represents the blood sacrifice of Christ as it pointed to what Jesus would do on the cross as the Lamb of God. Right? It was literally a picture of being clothed in the grace of God in Christ Jesus or hidden in him. And so this is the encounter here in in John 1. 
And it's in so many ways a redemption of what took place in the Garden of Eden. So we're going to see this over and over again in the interactions between Jesus and others. He is the God who turns. It's all over the Bible. Even when Jesus walks on water, you guys remember this? Maybe you don't. Mark 6, verse 48. I read over this. I read over this for years and didn't understand it. I thought he was just neglecting his disciples. They're out on the water in a boat, and it's a storm that comes up, and Jesus goes out walking on the water. And look at this, verse uh, 48, Mark 6. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, we're talking like 3 a.m. here, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by. But they cried out. Which echoes the voice of the Israelites enslaved in Egypt crying out in the, for, to the Lord for their freedom in the Old Testament. And just as God did for the Israelites in Egypt, he does for his disciples as Jesus turns. Jesus turns and he comes to them. Matthew's version even records Jesus telling Peter to come to him on the water. And he does. James 4.8, draw near unto God and he will draw near unto you. Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desire of your heart because the true desire of our heart is Jesus himself. Over and over again in the scriptures, you're going to see this theme of Jesus walking on his way, passing by and yet turning. Even when it seems like his priorities should be in one particular direction, Jesus literally goes out of his way to give full, unmitigated attention and care to others. Right? He does it for everyone. He's walking through a crowd. Somebody's dying. We're thinking like, hey, there's like tension being built. Jesus, you got to hurry. This is what matters most. And yet someone grabs the hem of his garment. And he turns. And it's not just an inconvenience. He's pleased to turn to the unclean woman. And everybody's going, hurry! And he's like, I'm here right now. Because anyone who approaches him, he turns. Anyone. He does it for everyone. From the unclean woman who touches the hem of his garment as he passes by to Zacchaeus, the traitor tax collector who climbs a tree just to see him. And Jesus turns aside and invites himself over to his house. <laughs> Jesus turns often seemingly at the expense of what we would deem as more important endeavors, and yet Jesus still tur turns towards those who draw near to him always. And he sees them. He doesn't see a traitor. He doesn't see an unclean woman. He sees them for who they are. Again, Jesus is the approachable hiding place and refuge through which we encounter the God who dwells in unapproachable light. So the first thing Jesus does is turn. He sees them and he gives them attention. But the second thing he does is speak. And it comes in the form of a question. Not unlike what happens in the Garden of Eden, right? Again, this is kind of God's MO here. You see, it's clear that Jesus sees them. They're not hiding. Thanks to John the Baptist, they're... they're they're like, okay, you're the one, we're approaching you, he told us, let's go. But his question for them is no less penetrating. So the second thing that he does is Jesus asks, what are you seeking? Right? Look, remember, he sees them and he knows. He doesn't just see a label, he doesn't just see a political affiliation, he doesn't see the litany of confused paradigms through which they view the world, which would have been a lot. He's not looking at their doctrine or their failure or their triumphs. He sees them. He sees people 
you got to get your head out of this cancel culture nonsense and see people. You don't need to see people who you think might come to Jesus because of the way they voted. No! Jesus sees people. He sees through all of that mess. And he says, come to me. And he asks, where are you? And he says, what are you seeking? He sees Andrew, and he sees John, and he sees them, and he loves them, not because of anything they've done or have not done or, or, or could do or couldn't do. He sees Andrew, and he sees John, the beloved disciple. He often intentionally leaves. Like This, this, this is why I, I actually kind of love this about the Gospel of John. We're going to see this over and over again. We know that this was John, by the way, because he doesn't say his name. Like, throughout the Gospel of John, he always refers to himself as the beloved disciple, or he'll be like, and there's two disciples there, and one of them's name was Andrew, right? And it's like, we know it's you, John, right? right? Like, <laughs> so that's kind of how we know. It's a consistent thing that he does, and so we know that it's him doing it. And so we see these two men whom he knew before, or, or he sees these two men whom he knew before the foundation of the world, and, and he fearfully and wonderfully knit them together in his, their mother's womb. And so the Alpha and Omega himself speaks, and he asks, what do you seek? What are you after? What motivates you? Is it money? Prosperity gospel. Is it networking? American gospel. <laughs> right? Like, is it your best life now? What are, you, what are you after? Now, I'm not sure what I would have answered here, if I, like, especially if I'm in their shoes, right? And I'm pretty sure they had plenty to say. Remember, these two were disciples of John the Baptist, okay? So they, they probably had a lot to say. Right? Maybe they were overwhelmed with all the things that they were thinking they could answer with. Right? Maybe they, they were thinking, we seek a true king from the line of David. Good answer. Maybe, maybe they're thinking, we seek the way, the truth, and the life. Maybe we seek to overthrow the oppressive rule of the Romans. Or, or we seek to fulfill the fulfillment of all the prophecies in the Old Testament and all the promises of God. Or maybe we seek the kingdom of God to come upon the earth. Or maybe we, we just we seek salvation. None of that's wrong. But honestly, all those answers kind of fall short. Because it's, it seems like in this kind of overwhelmed paralysis of what to say, they respond to a question with a question. And it comes out and they just simply say, Rabbi, where are you staying? And so this is actually a formal commitment to him as their rabbi. They were signing up to be his disciples. They're saying, I'm all in. Where you go, we go. Your people are our people. Your God's our God. Their question actually exposes their true desire to follow him and lay aside all of their opinions and agendas. They just say, I'm in. Your Lord, I'm not. That's what they're saying. Because that's what it means to follow Jesus. Because the true heart of every real disciple is to simply desire to be with Jesus. Even when it doesn't make sense. Or it's difficult. Or you really love that thing that he's saying you should let go of. To set aside our own agendas and to follow the king of glory. Because where else is there to go? 
His are the words of eternal life. And anything less is counterfeit Christianity. Period. Which then prompts this third action. I'm going to hurry up. Jesus says, come and see and stay. That last part's actually important. He says, come and dwell with me. Come and tabernacle with me. Come to Jesus and your eyes will be open to the glory of God and the greatest purpose in eternity. Simply come and see and stay. Come to Jesus. See his glory for yourself. Let the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace as you dwell with him and he with you for eternity. You know what causes the most anxiety in our hearts? Is when we try to be God. There's a freedom in just simply going, where are you going? Where are you staying? I can go where you go. I got nothing. You are everything. This is what it means to share life in Christ, and this is how we are to share life like Christ. Us and him and he and us and his love flowing through us towards one another as a display and invitation to the world around us of true, abundant life in Christ. But it means turning and seeing, allowing yourself to be joyfully and sacrificially inconvenienced by the Great Commission. I'm going to say that again. This means turning and seeing like Jesus, allowing yourself to be joyfully and sacrificially inconvenienced by the Great Commission. You're not too busy to turn and see those that he has strategically placed around you. Seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness and all else to be added unto you. Don't be too busy with your agendas to overlook and, and overlook his agenda, which is the great commission of making disciples who make disciples. Like don't discount the people on the way. Have eyes to see them. Jesus sees them and he's given you eyes if you'll let him to see them too. Let him inconvenience you. It's often where some of the most powerful and eternally significant interactions you'll ever have happen. But it means seeing others as he does, and it means asking questions to get to know them and help them identify where they're at with Jesus. Not just your opinions on them. What we see in Christ is that, yes, he does a whole lot of preaching, and he does a whole lot of talking, but he also does a whole lot of question asking. Not because he needs to know, but often because he wants them to think and know. And he's breaking down the barriers. This is how he sidesteps all the misdirection and labels that we often identify ourselves under. Right? He goes right to the heart. So it means asking questions to get to know them, to identify where they're at with Jesus. Questions like, what's your spiritual background? What do you think about Jesus? Where are you with Jesus? How's your soul? What are you seeking? What are your dreams? And I guarantee you that if you ask these questions, they will all ultimately lead to the heart of Jesus because he's the answer to everything that is on the hearts of humanity. Really, truly, because everything else is a counterfeit. So it means inviting, not just engaging. And it's not just talking at people. It's inquiring of people. It's, inv it's invitation and introduction. 
It's not just engaging, it's embracing. It's saying, come and see and stay. Come meet Jesus in and through the body of Christ. Come to my community group. Come with me on Sunday. Let's grab coffee and read through the book of John together, right? Come and see and stay. Dwell with Jesus together. Let's tabernacle with him. Let's abide in him together. See, this is evangelism. And I'm I'm wrapping it up right now, I promise. Real evangelism is simply helping others realize that their greatest desire is to abide with Jesus. That he's the one that they've been waiting for and looking for their entire lives. But evangelism isn't finished until discipleship begins. And that happens by introducing them to Jesus and embracing them into gospel community. This is why the local church matters. Right? So come and see and stay. And as we're going to see next week, when you truly abide in Jesus... The, nat- the next natural step is that how, like, as you've experienced him, you invite others into that relationship, right? So this is who we are as a church. This is what it means to share life in Christ. And this is how we share life in Christ with each other, our city, and beyond. So let's pray.